So you know who the shortest prophet is in the Bible, don't you? You know who the shortest prophet in the Bible is? Nehemiah. But he's not the shortest person in the Bible. Did you know that? Oh, he's on it. He's on it. Who's the shortest person in the Bible? Bill Dad the Shuhite. See, we're all, everyone's a joker, aren't they? Bill Dad the Shuhite. No, not floating your boat whatsoever. Okay, let's read the Bible then. So we do have quite a lot to go through. And there's a, there's a whole section in chapter 10 that's full of names. I'm not going to read those. It's just a list of names. They're all very important. Read them in your own time. Um, so Nehemiah chapter 9 then. And we'll race through this as much as we can. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their, and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood in the place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Karamil, Shebaniah, Bunai, Serabiah, Bani, and Shiniah. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Jeshua, Karamil, Bani, Hebaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and that person whose name I have tried but just can't, said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all all blessing and all praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens and their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and made with him a covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite and the Hittite and the Amorite and the Perizzite and the Jeshubite and the Gilgashite. It's an unfortunate name. (laughs) And you have kept your promise and you have been... (laughs) Send the book, send the book. And you have kept your promise and you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew and... You knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light them for for the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from the heavens and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and laws by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in in and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return, uh, to, return to their slavery in Egypt. 
But you are a God ready for, to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you in your great mercy did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them by the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. And did not withhold your manna from their mouths and give them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Shilon, the king of Hesbron, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as stars of heaven and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. And you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites and gave them into their hand with their kings and peoples of the land that they might do with them as, as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of house full and took possession of houses full of good things cisterns already hewn vineyards olive orchards and fruit trees in abundance and so they ate and they were filled and became fat and delighted themselves with your goodness nevertheless they were disobedient and they rebelled against you and your and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you and they committed great blasphemies therefore you gave them into the land of their enemies and made them suffer in the, and in time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them and the, from the hand of their enemies but after that they had they after but after that had rest and did evil again before you and abandoned and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them, and turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their necks and would not obey. For many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them nor forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God who keeps the covenant and steadfast love, let not the hardship seen let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come to us upon our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all the people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings and our princes and our priests and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you give them even in their own kingdoms, enjoying your great goodness that you give them. And in, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn to you from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves in this day, in the land that you give our fathers to enjoy its fruits and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. 
and its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins, and they rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document are the names of our priests and our Levites. Then I want to skip down to verse 28 of chapter 10. The rest of the people and the priests and the Levites, the gatekeepers and the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands of the law of their God, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with the brothers and their nobles and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land to take our daughters or our sons. And if the people of the land bring goods and grain on any Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and, the, and, 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 and exaction every debt. We also take ourselves to the obligation to give yearly a third of a shekel to the service of the house of God, for the showbread and the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offerings, the Sabbath and the new moons, and appoint feasts, the holy things and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all that we and for all that work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, the people, like have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring into the house of God, according to our Father's house at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. As it is written in the law, we bind ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree, year by year, so the house of the, to the house of the Lord, and also to bring into the house of our God to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the first fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chamber of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from the ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priests and the son of Aaron shall be with the Levites, and the Levites will receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring the tithe of the tithes to the house of God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel, the sons of Levi, shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister, and the gatekeepers, and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Flip an egg. Chapter 11. <laughs> that was a marathon. But I thought it would take me just as long to explain that as to read it, so thank you for bearing with me. There's a lot, a lot, a lot going on there. And there's a number of things that we, we need to realize what is actually happening. Israel is rediscovering. They've rediscovered the book of the law. They've rediscovered the word of God. Israel has rediscovered the Abrahamic covenant where God is making a promise to them to make them a people, to make them a nation, to make them part of his plan for the world. Israel is discovering their own identity. They're discovering who God says they are. They're discovering who God is. They're discovering the identity of the creator and the sustainer the merciful, steadfast, loving God that they serve. They're discovering who God is and they're discovering what God's plan is for them. And as they've gone on this journey of rediscovering, they begin to realize their responsibilities and where they have lacked and Israel begins to repent. 
through reading the book of the law for a quarter of a day. I know that felt like a quarter of a day there. But Israel commits themselves to hearing what God has communicated to them. And so for a quarter of a day, they read the book of Leviticus. It's hard going. And they confess their sin for a quarter of a day. And they worship God with outstretched arms for a quarter of a day. They're rediscovering what's really going on. And Israel, as they read this book of Leviticus, they see that over and over and over again, God has been faithful despite their waywardness. Consistently, they have let him down and consistently, he has been steadfast and merciful and gracious to them. And so they come to chapter 10 and they make a promise to God. We're not going to do it again. We're going to remain faithful. And so in chapter 10, they outline what their commitments are. If you, if you were to spend time reading Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 and then go back to Leviticus and you'd get to verse, or chapter 26 and you would see the parallels right there. They, they, they've, they've realized what God has done. Leviticus 26 is what they've been reading. And they realize the terms of God's covenant to them and the fact that the terms of God's covenant were unconditional. Sometimes we, we mistakenly think the God of the Old Testament is a God of law and the God of the New Testament is a God of grace. You look at the Old Testament, highlight every time it says steadfast love. The word is hesed, God's gracious, merciful, covenantal love. God has always been a God of grace. Grace has always been the plan. And they know, Israel knows, they can see that God tells them, if you keep the covenant, things will go well for you. And if you don't keep the covenant, things will not go well for you. Not because God is saying, do what I want and you get blessed and don't do what I want and you get cursed. It's because God's like, I know what's best for you. I know what your needs are. It says in, in Leviticus chapter well, uh, 26, verse 44, yet for all of that, when they were in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them, so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant, for I am the Lord their God. But I will for their, for their sake remember the covenants of their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. And God has said to them in Leviticus 26, you know, if you're faithful, everything will go well. And if you're not faithful, you're going to be carried into captivity. And Israel realizes the penny drops. That's why we're in captivity. That's why we've been carried off because we haven't been faithful. Look at Leviticus 26. Peter's going to fire it up. Those of you who know Maslow will see. Well, those of you who know Maslow will see. It says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you, uh, you rains in season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last uh, to the time of grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time of sowing. And you see right the way down as you read Leviticus 26, you see that God has promised them rains in season and crops You'll be able to eat bread till you are full. God says, I'm going to meet your physiological needs. 4,000 years before anybody even heard of Maslow, God's telling us how he's going to meet our physical needs. And God says, you will dwell in security and you will have peace and you will not be afraid and I will remove harmful wild animals and there will be no enemies in your land and any enemies that come from other lands to your land will flee before you. Five of you will put 500 of them to flight. God's given, meeting their physical needs. He's meeting their security needs. And God says, you will walk in loving relationships. You will lie down and not be afraid. You will enjoy 
your husbands and your wives and your families. He's given them loving security. And God says, and I will make my dwelling amongst you and I will be my God and you will be my people and we've got a job to do and therefore they're being actualized. God's saying, I've got a purpose and a point. I just think it's interesting that God takes every single one of those boxes 4,000 years before anybody even considered it. 6,000 years before anybody even considered it. God knows us people and God knows what is best for us. And despite these terms in the covenant, they're unconditional. Even when they walk away and they wander away, God says, I will not abhor them. I am still their God. I will not destroy them. I will show them mercy. God is faithful. God keeps his promise. God is not like you and I, that he would try and flatter us or tell us lies. When God says he will do something, he will do it. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do or has he spoken and he will not fulfill? No, if God says it, God will do it. And Nehemiah says in verse eight of chapter nine, God, you have kept your promise because you are righteous. God, God doesn't keep his promise because we deserve it. God keeps his promise because of who he is. God keeps his promise because he is a gracious and loving God. And Israel recognizes their own sin. They acknowledge their unfaithfulness. They acknowledge their disobedience. And they stand before God and they confess their sin. You know, sin is one of those churchy words that sometimes needs an explanation. Some of us are so familiar with it, you probably don't even know what it means. You're so familiar with something, you don't even know what it means. Sin's one of those things. It's not a sin. Sin's a mathematical term. Uh, the actual word that uh, is used in Nehemiah is chata. It's a mathematical term. It means off-center. We've, we've translated it into the Anglo-Saxon to fall short. And that's true. We talk about narrow falling short of a target. That is true. But it's a mathematical term. It's when you get something out. Look, if I'm pricing a job, I sell floors. I sell by the square meter. If, if, if I get a job, it's 50p out. You say, that's only 50p out. But when you have 10,000 square meters at 50p out, it's not only 50p out. It's a big mistake then. And the same is true whenever you're pl plotting a course. Uh, and this is where the term sin comes from. When you're plotting a course and you get one degree out, you're going to end up in trouble. And what happens here is Israel, God is faithful and Israel gets fat and they get wealthy and they think, look, we're doing pretty well here. Look what we have done. Aren't we clever boys and girls? And they forget for their need of God and they begin to make miscalculations and they begin to sin and they begin to fall short. They go chata, they go askew. They go off center. You know, it's, it's kind of like if you, were, if you were to fly a plane and, and you charted your course and your course was one degree off, for every 92 feet you fly, you will be one mile off target. One degree off course, fly 92 feet forward, one mile off target. So that means if you were going to fly from the equator around the earth, you'd be 500 miles off your line, just by one degree. I did the sums. Somebody else did the sums. That's like, somebody says, somebody on the internet says, that's like flying from JFK to LAX and landing 40 miles in the Pacific Ocean. 
you kind of want to get those degrees right. It's just a wee tiny increment, but the consequences are massive. And just like the control tower in an airport sends out a landing beam for an airplane to keep them on track, God, through his spirit, by the example of his son, and through his word, sends out a landing beam to keep us on track. This is who I am. This is what I've done. And provided we keep on beam, we keep on message, things will go well. But when we get fat, and look how well we have done for ourselves, and we forget about God, and we make a miscalculation, now we start to go off beam. When we take control, we go our own way, we fall short of the course. And Jesus says to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except through me. And we need to keep on beam. Israel confesses their sin. They acknowledge their sin before God. And they realize they need to make a correction. And so Israel repents. Repentance, another one of those churchy words, is a recognition of you being off course. It's an acknowledgement of something has gone wrong. It's not lining up. We're going to end up way wide of the mark. And so they begin to stand before God and they repent, correcting their course so they can head towards their proper destination. Repentance is not about being burdened to the breaking point. Sometimes we think repentance is a guilt trip where God tries to guilt us into submission. That is not what repentance is. Repentance is us making that correction. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. God's repentance has taken us to a place where we're glad. It's a place, it takes us to a place of freedom. It takes us to a place where chains are broken and where we can live in the full expression of the person that God intended us to be. God's freedom that he offers us through repentance is not a freedom motivated by guilt. It's a freedom motivated by love, by God's steadfastness and God's covenantal love. God's kindness is what leads us to repentance. So I would ask you this morning to think about your life. Is there guilt in your life? Is there shame in your life? Consider repentance. Not worldly repentance where you're burdened by grief and by guilt, but an acknowledgement that you need a course correction, that God is faithful, that God is loving, that God is accepting Maybe some people come to, some, maybe you're here today because you're looking for answers or maybe you're here today because you're looking for comfort. Sometimes people do that, come to church at the hard times looking for answers or comfort and that's good. And I would say to you, the answers and the comfort are in the repentance and in the confession. And that's what Israel does, Israel confesses. Israel declares before God. This is another really interesting word. This is a word that's been ruined by American sitcoms. The word to confess is the word yada. Yada, yada, yada. Right? 
And we sort of think, whenever you hear that on an American sitcom, we sort of think yada, yada, yada is again, blah, blah, blah. It's not blah, blah, blah. Yada is to declare the truth in the presence of God. To declare the truth in the presence of God. The Yiddish word means I speak the truth, I speak the truth, I speak the truth. God is my witness. Yada, yada, yada. It means a whole, a whole new level of meaning right there, in there? And Israel stands before God and they declare the truth in his presence. We need to see this through the filter of the cross. The cross is where we meet with God's loving graciousness. And Israel stands in front of God and they declare the facts of their sin. Remember, Israel is God's people. And if you've come to Jesus, you're God's people. Israel are not is not declaring their sin in order for God to forgive them. We do not, as God's people, we do not declare our sin in order for God to forgive us. Do you know why? Because if you're God's person, if you're God's child, your sin is already forgiven. When you came to him for salvation, for grace and mercy, he forgave your sins, your past sins, your present sins, and he forgave your future sins. That's why Romans 8.1 says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, if you don't know Jesus yet, I suggest that's a really good place to start. Come to him and confess your sins and they will be forgiven, past, present, and future. But Israel stands in front of God as God's people, and as his people, they declare, his sin, declare their sins to him. Not because they want his forgiveness, not because he doesn't know what their sins are. He already knows what their sins are. But they confess their sin because they realize to be in sin is to be in rebellion against God, and to be in rebellion against God is taking a step away from the relationship with God. Do you know when you've done someone wrong? and you see them, you're like, oh, you want to avoid them? That's what sin does to us and God. It means we want to take a step away. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. They hid from God, hiding from an all-seeing being. Very clever. Rebellion is a relational move away from God. Rebellion is rejecting God's nature. It's rejecting who God says he is. That's why Israel confessed in front of God, you are the creator and the sustainer of the universe. You know, it'd be really easy for us to get the wrong idea of confession because when we say the word confession, it can conjure up all sorts of imagery. It can, it can conjure up some sort of religiosity of smells and bells and having to go and, and doing penance and wrong, wrong. That is not what confession is. Nor is it the good cop, bad cop, you know, I'll give you something nice or I'll hit you with a stick. I'll give you something nice or I'll hit you with a stick. That's not what's going on. God isn't trying to coerce us. God isn't trying to, to, to push us, squish us so far down until we break. That's not what confession is about. Confession is not for God's benefit. Confession is for our benefit. God is a holy and righteous and pure God. And just as darkness cannot exist in light, sin, rebellion, unholiness cannot exist in the presence of God. Do you see? And so God wants to remove that from us so that we can commune with him. And Israel declares who God is. You're holy, you're righteous. God, you decide what's right and wrong. God, you decide what's good and evil. God, you set the standard. 
Because I, I kind of want to set the standard. If I'm telling you who's good and who's evil, all the good people are just slightly above me and all the evil people are, are, are just slightly below me. I'm the standard, <laughs> right? Not what we do. Israel saying, no, we're not the standard, God. You set the standard. You draw the line if there's a line to be drawn. You say what's good and you say what's evil. Why? Because you're the creator. We're the created. You're the sustainer. We're the sustained. God gets to call the shots because God is God. And they acknowledge who God is and they acknowledge what they have done and they say, God, we're going to go your way. I want to show you a video clip. I've got to thank Ian Hutchinson who got an email from me at seven o'clock last night saying, any chance? It happened. Thank you, Ian, for this video. Let's have a look. Captain, there's an unknown object at 1200. Sir, contact established. Answer bigger, please. This is A853. Please change your course by 15 degrees southwards in order to prevent a collision with us. This is the USS Lincoln, member of the United States Navy. Change your course by 15 degrees northwards in order to avert a collision with us. Over. This is not possible. You have to avoid. This is Captain Richard James Howard speaking, commander of the USS Lincoln aircraft carrier, part of the Navy of the United States of America. We are the second largest warship of the American fleet. We are escorted by two cruisers, six destroyers, and four submarines. I command you to change your course by 50 degrees northwards. If you do not comply, we will be forced to take necessary action. Over. We have our food and a friend who is making a siesta right now. We do not move anywhere. We are a lighthouse on the coast of Spain. So once we know who God is and what the standard is, we get to make the course correction. You know, it was really important for the captain of that ship to realize the identity of the person who he was talking to. He wouldn't have been so haughty or arrogant had he known that right off the bat. And repentance and, uh, repentance and confession are our course corrections to get us back on beam with our guide. Confession is the relational move towards God. We acknowledge his sovereignty that's what Israel did. We acknowledge he knows true right from wrong. That's what Israel did. We acknowledge he knows good and bad better than we do. And we acknowledge he knows truly the right paths for us. And the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin before you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgive the iniquity of my sin.
You know, we do, we want to hide it, don't we? We want to hide it. We want to cover it up. We want to hope he doesn't notice. He's an all-seeing, all-knowing God. And David says, I put it out there, God. I don't hide it from you. I show it to you. I'm shamed and I'm guilty, but I show it to you. And God forgives and God covers. And so Israel confesses. And what's interesting about this is how Israel confesses. Isn't it interesting? They separate themselves from all foreigners. That seems a wee bit elitist, but that's not what's going on. By separating themselves from the foreigners, Israel's saying, this has got nothing to do with you. This is our sin. This is not your fault. This is our responsibility. We will confess this before God. And so they separate themselves from, their, from foreigners and they confess the sins of their fathers. That's an interesting thing. Jesus has told us that you don't pay the price for the sins of your fathers, but here is Israel saying, we are taking responsibility as a nation. We realize we are hewn from the same rock. We realize we have the potential to do exactly as they did. And so we are taking ownership of what has gone before. And they pledge themselves not to marry other nations. That seems a wee bit exclusive too. But Israel is confessing before God and they're saying, we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again. We're taking responsibility for what has gone before. We're taking responsibility for what is going to happen in the future. And Israel commits. They say to God, we're going to declare a Sabbath year. A Sabbath year means all debts are canceled. It means all prisoners are set free. We're going to declare a Sabbath year. And Israel says, we're going to bring to the house of God everything that we need to bring for our sacrifice, but we're going to bring more. We're going to bring a quarter of a shekel on top of that. Bringing more than, sometimes bringing more than a sacrifice means we forget to bring the sacrifice. Israel says, we're bringing the sacrifice and we're bringing then some. We're stepping up our commitment, God. We're not going to see the house of God in ruins. Israel stands before God and they acknowledge it's King Artaxerxes in Babylon paying for the rebuilding work. It's King Art. It's a pagan king paying for the temple. It's a pagan king writing the salary for the priests. And Israel says, we're not going to let that happen because you are our God and this is our mission, our partnership with you, and we're going to stand in the gap. We're not going to leave this to somebody else to fund. We're going to put our hands in our pockets. We're going to put our shoulder to the wheel and we're going to push and we're going to pay even if it hurts. We are not abdicating responsibility to somebody else. And they pledge their first fruits. That's a throwaway line. They say the first crop, the first cut is the deepest, right? Rod got it right. But the first cut is the deepest. Any farmer knows the first yield of the harvest when he's cutting the silage or the hair, whatever it is, the first cut is going to be the deepest cut. We're going to give that to God. The firstborn child, we're going to bring our firstborn child to the temple, offering the child in service. That's your pension. They're bringing their pension and saying to the priests, you do what you want. There was occasion where they said to the priest, I'm bringing my son, but here's five shekels. I want to buy him back. And so they redeem him back. And the five shekels pays the Levite's salary. They bring of their best to God. And we've got to filter this too. There's a New Testament filter we've got to see this through. 
But Paul says to the Philippians, I'm sending you Epaphroditus. He's given of himself on your behalf. Honor men such as these. And I don't want to embarrass anybody, but those who lead us give of themselves on our behalf. They give of their time, they give of their family, they give of their commitment, they give of their substance. And we are a lucky church to have leaders that don't lord over us, that don't manipulate us or control us, but get underneath us and serve us and point us to God. And I got to say, we got to honor them. We got to honor our senior leadership team and we got to honor our pastors. Buy them a burger. Send them a card. Acknowledge you're grateful. Honor such men and women. And that's an opportunity for us to commit in just the same way that Israel does. Will you stand with me? Here's the thing. Israel never declared jubilee. Israel never canceled debts. Israel never set prisoners free. Israel didn't stick to their promise. I don't stick to mine. And I know you don't stick to yours. You might be standing there this morning thinking, I can't change. And you would be right. You cannot change. And he does not expect you to change. He just expects you to experience his love. His love will change you. Sometimes we refuse to repent because we have just good intentions, but they fall short. Or perhaps we're not willing to give up sinning, but quite like the stuff. Perhaps we don't want to be a hypocrite. That's why we need a savior. God is not calling you today to make a pledge to be perfect. He knows that you can't be perfect. But he is calling you to make a pledge. This is not more of the same. So I want you to stand in God's presence and ask. Ask him to direct your way. What do you need to do? Some of us need to confess. We need to declare the truth in God's presence. Some of us need to repent. Some of us need to commit. We need to step up. We need to stand in the gap. That may be physically, it may be financially. You know what it is. God's telling you right now. Some of us have loved the blessing more than the blesser. Some of us have loved the blessing more than we have loved the blesser. Let us confess let us repent and let us commit.